just to start out our sermon, I'm going to read in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 17, if you want to get there. But I have a question for you as we start, and a que- couple questions, actually. Um, the questions are this. Have you ever felt like you needed to just escape the absolutely crazy pace of life you're living and move into the mountains or a farm or somewhere and start like a new life? Have you ever felt that? Right? Maybe some of you came to Idaho for that reason. It's okay. We love you. Um, second, um, maybe you felt that, no, things are good. In fact, my life is good. I've got all this stuff, this technology, this money, these resources, whatever it is. Um, but if there's just a little more, that one more piece of the puzzle, then I could really live a life that was like really clicking on all cylinders, so to speak. Um, I don't know. I'm guessing because I have felt both of these ways that you have felt at some time one of these impetuses in your soul. Okay, and so um, I'm going to be really bold today, and I'm going to say that I have an answer to that. Okay, I have an answer to you and your longings in life and trying to, um, wanting to maybe detach because of the craziness of life and, and kind of live on your own. I have an answer to you if you're like, just can't, you know, you just think, I need more time management to make it work. I can almost get there, but it's always that carrot on a stick. I have an answer for you on what would solve your problem, and it's in one word, and you're not going to get it maybe at first, but it's this. It's the word Trinity. It's the word Trinity. Um, the Bible tells us about our God, about the God that is real, that he is three persons in one. For most of us, that doesn't seem to have any relation to our everyday life, and I want to change that a little bit if I can today by talking about it here this morning. Because this conference we went to this uh, last week was a cultural engagement conference, and where they see uh, things going, and I agree that there are two futures people are working towards. One, people are kind of detaching and going into communities and building communities separate from other communities um, and going into uh, kind of prepping and self kind of uh, existence with their families and, in, and because of maybe a view of this world that's dystopian, one that's like, hey, it's going to get really bad. And then another one where people are trying to now augment reality, which is not necessarily a bad thing. There's things we can celebrate about Oculus and all this stuff going on. Um, But trying to augment reality and even change our next level of human evolution by bringing everything under our skin and connecting it to the tech that we live in. And so I think that both of those things express something of a longing in us that is answered only in God and in the triune God specifically of the Bible. And I know that um, you might say, what, the Trinity is the answer to my problems? Um, yes, it, it's an ancient and often misunderstood or misexplained truth of the Bible, though it, the word itself is not in the Bible. And about 10 years ago, I started on this journey. And I don't know how, how you guys journey with God and, and learn new things, but I started on this journey where uh, I was encountered with more people who were talking about this idea of God being three in one in Trinity. And uh, it, just so you know, we we're kind of in a uh, historically like a Trinitarian revival theologically. Like the last 50 years, there's been way more books and things written on it. It's amazing, actually, when you look into it. But I, I encountered this for the first time, and it came at a time where I was trying to build a community and a church plant in England where I just, things weren't yet connected. And 
I felt like we were a click away, or I felt like we're not quite there yet, or sometimes, to be honest, because it's so hard, I wanted to just kind of disconnect and start something new entirely. And so uh, through a lot of trial, through a lot of failure, through a lot of difficulty, and still to this day living a messy, trial-filled life that's not perfect, but now I would say I do experience the answer to those longings, to those things in our hearts and our minds that are there. And I experienced that through the very nature of God himself. Um, and I believe that's because God has made us that way. So here's, here's a quote before we get into uh, John 17. Um, it, this journey has led me to see God's nature has a very direct impact on the way we live our lives. So Tozer said this, he said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what he's saying there is like, whatever you think right now about God, if you're an atheist and you think God doesn't exist, then that's going to impact your life and the way that you uh, engage or don't engage, both with the thoughts about God, but also just a life and an experience um, towards God in some way. If you are more deistic and you think God is far apart, far separate, and he's kind of out there, he kind of got things going, and now he's distant from you. You're going to feel distant from God in your experience, um, etc. I could go on and on. If you believe in the uh, pluralistic, kind of polytheistic gods that you have to cycle through life, lives in order to kind of please them and work off things in your life and get to the point where you can be pure enough to experience a reality forever, then you're going to live a certain way. The Bible says this in Psalm 115, verses two to nine, it says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. Hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. And they don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, listen, those who make them become like them. And so do all those who trust in them. What's he saying? He's saying, you become like what you worship. Okay? So whatever your concept, along with Tozer, of God is, that's what your life will image or reflect or become like. That's what Psalm 115 and A.W. Tozer are saying. And I believe that's true. I've seen it be true over and over again in my life and other people's lives. People become like their gods or their non-gods or their highest pursuit because that is what you worship, what you go after, that vision of life, whether it's from a dystopian standpoint or a utopian one that you're trying to create for yourself. So that's why the next three weeks, we're gonna take a look at the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this series called Life Together, uh, Community in the Image of the Trinity. We're gonna walk through how, who God is. Okay, so it's sometimes we think so much that we need to come to church or to a, a service or whatever and get information practically on what we need to do. And what I want to tell you guys is that what I've experienced is, is as you come to know who God is and behold him more, your life will change. And I'm super, super excited because we prayed through this. Tucker and I were kind of talking about this over the last several weeks. And uh, we kind of arrived at a place where we're going to use the Gospel of John, chapter 17, chapter 15, and chapter 13 as kind of the framework, chapter 13, 15, as the framework for this. And so we're going to get started in John 17 this morning. Um, and we're going to talk today about the Father and all of the Trinity as we get going here today. So I hopefully won't 
stumble because it's a concept and it's a big reality. God, that's one big topic, um, but hopefully we'll be able to behold God this morning a little bit. And I, I love what Sinclair Ferguson said about this passage of scripture as I set it up to read it, John 17. He said this, John 13 to 17, before Jesus goes to the cross, he has the most to say to his disciples about the Trinity and his relationship to the Father and to the Spirit. Christ's final words to his disciples before going to the cross were to explain in part the doctrine of the Trinity since since the doctrine of the Trinity was so important for Jesus to stress as such a pivotal moment in history, we're right to assume that it's also imperative for us to understand the person and work of the entire Trinity. He's just saying, look, Jesus said this discourse and these things about the nature of God right before he went to the cross. And yet we treat this idea of God's three-in-oneness as some weird doctrine or something that's too hard to grasp rather than something to dive into and really know our God. So let's read John chapter 7, 17, excuse me, verse 1 to 5, and, and then I'll pray and we'll get started. Here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow, let's pray. Father, this is such an amazing um, picture of who you are seen through the eyes of Jesus as he talks to you, um, and we get to kind of peek into it this morning. So please, would you help us to be able to grasp in some way your very nature and let that impact our lives? Um, Jesus, thank you for praying this prayer to the Father, and that uh, we pray, Spirit, that you would uh, help us and open our eyes to who you are. In Jesus, your name we pray, amen. Okay, so... Um, we are going to look today at this idea of life together. And the first point is life together is the life of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in verses 1 to 5. Okay, that we just read. That's the first point today. That life together, this series title, that is actually the very life of God himself. What is life? What are you pursuing if it's not the Trinity, one philosopher said, it's actually going to just do nothing but lead you to despair and hell itself. I mean, the quite strong words. So the life that God has, his life together, is true life. Um, one man said it this way. He said, for what makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God, the God which we worship. That's the article of faith that stands before all, all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself in every aspect of the gospel. Creation, revelation, salvation is only Christian insofar as it's the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. That's Michael Reeves from a book called Delighting in the Trinity, which I'd recommend. He's saying that God is real and he has acted. He's created, Father creates, the Bible says, Son creates, Spirit creates. He's redeemed, the Father sends Jesus. Jesus comes to die, the Spirit gives Jesus the power to go to the cross and raise from the dead. 
and he will come again. The Father will decree that. Jesus will come again and the Spirit will empower him to exercise his judgment on this earth till salvation is finished. He works in your life. The Father calls you. Jesus died for you. The Spirit woos you. This is who our God is. So why is it then that we think about this word Trinity and we think that is so detached from my reality? In reality, it's God's very nature and it's, it's who he is. And there's two parts of that. First of all, he is one, okay? What I wanna say this morning, first of all, is that God is one God. Christians do not worship three gods, okay? The great Shema of Israel was this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And in that, he says that he is Echad. That's the word for one. But what I find interesting is that that word ekad is not a word that means a singularity. It's not a word that means um, one and only one. It's a word that actually means one in a compound unity. And we get this picture in the Bible um, from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, Genesis that this is the way it is, that it says that, God said, let us make man in our image. There's a plurality even in the word Elohim. Some people explain that away a little bit, but there is this plurality in God. And then he creates man and he says, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them both in the image of God. Later in chapter two, he says, you will become one flesh with one another in your marriage relationship. And that word one is the word echad, which means compound unity. So the closest thing that we have on this planet to the nature of God is you, husband, you, wife, together with each other, you image God. Like Paul would say later in Ephesians chapter five that Christ and the church are this mystery, you know, that husband and wife express, this oneness. So God is one, but even in his oneness, there's a hint in the Bible, there is more than that. There is, there's much more than that. But uh, I do want to be careful to say that Christians don't believe in three gods. Christians believe in one God. But then God is also three. Now, we just sang it this morning, right? That's a beautiful song. I'm so glad for that modern day hymn. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. And that comes from theologians historically, even these guys called the Desert Fathers. That's a kind of a cool name, isn't it, by the way? The Desert Fathers, that's like a band name. Who wants to start a band called the Desert Fathers, right? Um, The Desert Fathers came up with this word called uh, perichoresis, which means basically totally encircled and totally filled. And the idea there was that Father, Son, and Spirit are totally encircled around one another and in one another. And this is what we're seeing Jesus unpack here in John 17. He's like, I'm in you, you're in me. It's this whole picture of what the reality of the Trinity is. And it's mysterious and it's mystic and it's up there. But that's who God is. God is three. Some theologians call this the great dance, that forever God is like Father and Son and Spirit together, intertwining, interweaving, and this is the nature of God. Let me bring it down into kind of like um, terms that I understand better. Think about it this way. If you think about a single person alone in their house, what are your first initial feelings? If you're an introvert, you're like, sounds pretty good. Um, but even then, if you're an introvert, there will be a certain point of time where you get bored or you feel alone and you feel like I need some other people around me or at least a dog or a cat. Um, that will happen. But then think about a group of three friends hanging out and the buzz of conversation in that house and games being played, 
words being exchanged, hopefully nice ones. And, and basically you have this different picture, right, all together. That helps me to understand in a simplistic way that uh, God is that way. And that accords with my experience in life. That if I was like, uh, believe like many of the religions of the world, that God was singularity, that he was just one like that, just one person, my experience in relationships would necessarily have to be different, okay? And, and when I say that, um, think about it this way too. There was one older dead dude as well named Richard, just called Richard the Scot, and he uh, entered into an abbey, into like a, a cloister, into a, a monkhood, and he argued that God could not be intrinsically loving for all of eternity if he was this single God on his own. Why? Because he'd have no one to love. He'd have nobody to love. Or worse than that, if he did have to create someone to love, what would that mean? He'd be like that uh, jilted or needy boyfriend or girlfriend that's like, please love me, please love me. And you know you didn't want to date those people in high school. That is not who God is. Or even what if God was two people? What if God was two people, a couple that was in relationship and in love with one another, but they were that annoying couple that never let anybody into the relationship? right? Just always with themselves and exclusive. So God could not just be one. God could not just be two. He had to be three so that the love between them would flow between them and then spill out through the spirit to other people. That's what love is. And so forever, Jesus says in this passage, if we go back to John 17, Jesus is saying, for all of eternity, this is life. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Father and Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit responding. That is who our God is. That is what eternal life is. There's no other life, and that is a life of love. The Trinity is our foundation. God does not just become someone who shares. God is sharing itself. God does not just become somebody who loves. God is love itself. There's no other type of love that even exists apart from God. Is that making your mind kind of go around circles a little bit already? Um, Let's think of it another way, just to help us a little bit. Father, Son, Spirit, forever, hanging out as friends, um, having an amazing time. God did not have to say, oh, you know what, I'm bored now, and now I'm going to create somebody. I'm I'm just a little bit tired. I'm a little bit bored. I, I need to have somebody to kind of hang out with. And that's where it all comes together because this is the image Jesus is giving in John 17 that Jesus' experience before he goes to the cross and he looks for it is like, Father, I want that again, what we had. That friendship, that dancing around, I want that again. And I thank you that that is what real life is and I'm going to experience it again and I want that to be passed on to others, which we'll talk about in a minute. That is who God is which changes the way that you live. So, for example, uh, I don't know if you know um, that Pastor Tucker is a very friendly person. I think you've all experienced that to some degree. Um, He's so strange to me in that, like, he literally is the most friendly person I've ever met in my life. Um, And I had this taste of this this week as I went to this conference with him and Poe and some other people and and just experienced what was going on. 
And my experience helped me to understand different than an explanation of friendship or an explanation of like the Trinity would help me understand God. The experience helped me quite a bit. Um, so I don't know if you know about this, this about Tucker. He also loves backgammon quite a bit. So we've got some pictures of some backgammon going on here. Um, literally, I feel like all I did at this conference was play backgammon. Um, I learned some stuff and I listened to some lectures and talked, but you know, Tucker plays backgammon anytime he can. And we got Jessica there with a the Corvette playing backgammon. We got the whole crew, like the whole trip was, seemed like it was about backgammon. Um, and I loved it. Like he beat me 20 or 30 times and I beat him once. So it just shows you he is an expert at this craft. But what I experienced was as we came back on our flight uh, to Boise, he said, well, do you want to play another game? And part of me is like, not really, because you beat me every time. Uh, The other part was like, yes, of course, I'm loving learning this game. Um, But then I also had some work to do, and I'm just like, bro, I kind of have to do some things. I have to get ready for Sunday. I have to do other things. And and so he kind of turned, and there was a guy next to him, and he started like, say, hey, have you ever played backgammon? (laughs) And so he starts like, having this conversation with this guy, and then they end up playing a game of backgammon. And beforehand, he explains the rules of backgammon, which is hard to do, okay? I found myself, even after playing 20, 30 times, just like, okay, exactly, what are the right moves? How do you play this game? And he did it, he did a really good job. Um, It's hard to explain. Have you tried to explain the rules of a game versus actually going out and playing the game, right? So uh, I remember one of the worst sermon illustrations I ever gave in my life, which maybe you're thinking this is one. I don't know, but like, um, but the worst one from my perspective was when I was in England and I was trying to explain something. I started explaining, hey, it's like in American football when you play, a, play American football. And then I realized as I said that, and I got like two lines in, that everyone's face was blank and nobody knew what American football was or how they actually played the game. So then I proceeded to start to say like, okay, well, what you do is you have this ball, you say hike, and then you have to like throw it or run it. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you sneak it. And then sometimes like, and I just started like, oh my gosh, you go 10 yards, but then you can go back yards. And it was the most convoluted explanation I'd ever provided for American football, even though I had played the game. And so what I'm saying is sometimes a technical explanation doesn't get to the heart of the reality. And I do think that it's like that with the Trinity. We've heard examples like God is like an egg. He's yolk, white, and shell. Not really do I want an eggy God, not, 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 not particularly. Um, God is like H2O, he's steam, he's water, he's solid. Like, do I want to view Jesus as a cold block of ice? That's not a very welcoming image, and it doesn't fully get to this idea at all because those three forms are not kind of persons or personalities. So w- w- what is this? What do I do? And the reality is that the Bible says that God is one God, and he's three, and Part of our difficulty in understanding that is that we do not relate that way historically in our culture. We don't relate communally. And so uh, if you look at it in the, in the story of, in, of the, the Western world, so to speak, we are at a point where, uh, and have been for a long time, though I think it might be changing, where it's like, we view God. If I say God this morning, your immediate thought is one individual up there, many of you, and then you're an individual and you relate to him like that, one-on-one. It's the Jesus and me. And if you look at a lot of the way we talk about God and about Jesus, it's like it's always Jesus and me, Jesus and me, Jesus and me, right? Which isn't a bad thing necessarily fully, but what I would say is it belies the reality that we don't know how to relate communally where a lot of other cultures do. 
God relates in the Bible to himself as three in one, which enables him to be who he is. And then he relates to his people. Now, here's the really good news. Turn to uh, uh, Exodus 34, chapter six, or chapter 34, verse six and seven. I want you to turn there. Um, here's the good news about God. And again, sometimes like talking about this and seeing this mystical view of G- that Jesus provides this peek into in John 17 is great. But then think about this. God, when he wanted to reveal himself, he said this about his own name about who he is. Exodus 34, six to seven, says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Did you see that? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, This is God, again, revealing who he is. And this is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he says he's compassionate. He's helpful. He's slow to anger. He's loving. He's dependable. He's forgiving. And he's just. Even though we don't always want justice, we do want it when evil is done. And so he's just. That's good. And then the Bible says that Jesus is the same way because he's the expressed image of God, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, stamped into this world in a body. It's an unmistakable allusion to this passage right here. And so here's what I'm saying with all this first point. I'm just trying to, in very feeble words, help us get a picture a little bit of the greatness, the majesty, the goodness, the, the awesome nature and relationship of the God that is the God of this world. He's a community, that's why we communicate. He is in a relationship, that's why we wanna have relationships. He is all of these things. And it matches with the experience and the reality. And that's where these longings that we have in us for real life come from. And that life is found only in the God of the Bible. Takes on more shape, this Exodus passage, because in the context God's revealing himself to people who did what? Made a golden calf, took his image and turned it, and said, this is the Lord. Remember that story? Like Aaron literally makes this gold calf, and he says to Moses later, like I put gold in, and it popped out, and there was a golden calf. I don't know what happened. And then we all worshiped it. And that is often what we do unintentionally, just like We read in Psalm 115, we make a God after our own fashioning that's not this triune God of the Bible. And so my whole purpose this morning, now I'll move on to some hopefully a little more practical things, but I want you to behold this God and I want you to relate to this communal God, this society of persons in the Trinity. Why? Because it affects how you live. And that's the second point uh, today. And we'll read verses six to 11 in John 17. And it says, and the point is this, that life together is the life of God's people in his image. Let me read for us, John 17, six to 11. Jesus goes on. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words you gave to me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world 
but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Okay. Do you see why this passage is so interesting, powerful, draws you in, makes you think, makes you behold God in wonder, and then say, what does it mean that we would be one as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one? How is that even possible? How can, what would that look like? Well, as I said before, this Trinitarian God of the Bible is a community of friends, firstly, and ideally, uh, and, and, and he is the one who communicates, he serves, he lives connected, he is the perfect relational family model for all of our families that make up the human family, um, and, and this is what love is. He, love is spoken of, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. This is the whole reality here, and this is spoken of over um, 800 times throughout scripture that God is love, that, that this is the reality of his nature and this is what he calls us into. So when we say love one another and when we talk about that, when Jesus calls us to love one another, he's calling us to know the Trinitarian God and now live in his image, be one as he is one. That can entail all sorts of things. And so I... I basically have the opportunity this morning as the pastor over the communities just to tell you like when we talk about Calvary communities when we talk about what we're trying to to do how we're trying to encourage you to live life um, it's not a program it's not a thing to try to manipulate you and get you to be with these people or do this or or whatever it may be I mean and that has happened people uh, sadly do that um it is a desire to let our lives be changed as we know God and live in the way that he's called us to live with the spirit that he's given. Jesus says, like, you've given them what you've given me, Father. Have you thought about that? That God the Father gave Jesus, like, as a human being, the spirit, and gave him this nature to walk in, and now he says, you've given it to them too. Do you think that possibly our version of living life is a little bit less than the life that Jesus has called us to? Do you think it's possible that the love that he has within the triune Godhead is not being expressed as well as it should be in our marriages? I I know it is. In our families, I know it is. In our church. Now, why would we we put people together by geographic location, for example? Um, Because um, then you don't get to pick your friends, okay? Because church can so easily become about cliques and like, I like these people and, and, and that's fine on one level. You need a season of life uh, kind of group to be a part of college people, post-college. I'm all for that on one level. I'm not going to tell you exactly how to live out community. But what I'm saying to you is that um, the Father, Son, Spirit, they're all diverse and yet they have this love for one another. And as we come to see what Jesus says here, that he wants us to be one as they are one, um, then it raises all these questions of how we do that. And then it becomes, to be honest, it can become dangerous and difficult and hard. This is why people have left churches over and over. It's like, I didn't find community. I didn't find what I was looking for. But, But can I just tell you this? Let me, let me quote Bonhoeffer, who wrote the magnum opus on community called Life Together. He said, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. 
even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious, and the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. Now, I'm going to be honest. I've slipped into that at times, you know, because of this wonder of like, man, Lord, we got to be one like you are one. But we have to be careful because with the purest of intentions, we can go off. And as C.S. Lewis says, men are pleased to make other men as they please in their image, not after the image of God. So I'm not going to tell you exactly how living the life of Trinitarian community is going to play out, but I'm going to be firm and say firmly, can you do what Jesus does If you really believe in this God, can you say that you've identified, remember Jesus walked with 12 specific people, right? They're named in all the gospels, like Matthew, you know, Bartholomew, all these people. They're very specific, Judas, the other Judas, Simon, Andrew, John, James, all these people. It's a specific group of people that are named to live in community with Jesus and it takes place, it's verifiable, nameable. Let me ask you a question. Other than your family, which I love your family. Um, I love my family. I love my kids. Other than your family, who do you do that with? On a regular rhythm and basis that you are sharing life to the fact that somebody can say, like, hey, they are one. Man, I, I see. They are one. I'm not here to condemn you, but I am here to say to you, do you think it's possible you're not yet expressing the full image of God in your life and experiencing the joy that Jesus wants to offer through that. So, we don't see ourselves as persons in community, but that's how we are. Back to the beginning in Genesis, God made us male and female. We were never on our own. We were always individuals in community. And what Jesus does in John 17 here is he's calling out and saying, Father, there is going to be a new, what I call, primary community in people's lives. And that is going to be this discipleship relationship of people that you travel with, okay? First Peter chapter 2, check this out later, verses 9 to 12, has a beautiful passage about this. He says, you were in darkness, and you're not in darkness anymore. You once were not a people, now you are a people. And he relates it to the Roman culture where he says, you were strangers, peroikos is the Greek, and he says, now you are an oikos, you're a family. Well, in the Roman culture, Caesar was the father, and everybody was part of his oikos, his household. Like, you didn't have a choice. You're just born into Caesar's household, that's what you get. And what Paul is saying here is, you've been transferred into the household of the family of God, and you are to build a parallel, alternative structure to the reality that's all around you. Um, Those are lots of words. (laughs) (laughs) the point is this, that that longing we have to go and move into the mountains and like create something, one of my points is you don't need to go anywhere. God has given you an opportunity to experience his life and create an oikos, a household, a family right here. And God, you, you, you don't need to improve your life and get that one thing to click more and more because as Paul would say in Colossians, Your life's hidden with God in Christ. You're complete in him. 
When you begin to understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this way, when you begin to understand who God is, then you relate to God in a robust, full way that fulfills all of your needs. And you don't need to improve and get like this phone tapped into your head and like back into my brain spine and stuff like that so that I can like manipulate reality. Not that if you want to do that, go ahead. But I'm just saying, you don't need to. So, I'm going to finish up. Let's go to verses 24 to 26 in John 17 for our last point, which is life together is lived in the love of the Father as a family. So let's read verse 24. He says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is why we have to understand God. God did not start to be the father at some point like after like our timeline started. Forever, Jesus says right here, that Before the foundation of the world, I was experiencing and we were experiencing this glory that was the love that you had for me. Think about that. Forever God was the Father. Why is that important? Why is it important that God was a Father forever? He didn't become the Father at some point. Well, A, it's important because um, maybe you have had a poor experience of fatherhood in your life. And I'm very sorry for those of you that have had that experience. You grew up with a dad who was disconnected or abusive and cruel, even worse. And so when you hear this talk about God and the Trinity and we sing father, for example, maybe you're just like, you know, I have a hard time reckoning with that word because of the image I have in my mind of who my father was. Or maybe uh, conversely, you have a image in your mind of God as, or as of your father who was a good dad, but you've limited God then and you haven't realized that the father God was and is a million, 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 million times better than your dad, as good as he was. And so we have to understand God as father because it's part of his nature and we have to understand that because we need his heart expressed towards us and we need to realize that that's good for us. In Jesus' baptism, we had a, a baptism here earlier today which was amazing and, and it reminded me of all this because in Jesus' baptism, you have the father who says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and you have Jesus getting baptized the spirit descends on him as a dove. I wonder if you really sense the pleasure of God on you this morning if you know that you have a father who truly loves you. Jesus is making the point in this passage, I want them to be with me like that, and I want them to know that, Father, you love them as much as you love me. That's a radical statement. When's the last time you thought, God, I'm so thankful you love me as much as you love Jesus Christ? In one sense, this prayer in John 17 is Jesus' version of the self-talk that we do so often, right? Um, when's the last time you had some really good self-talk, negative self-talk battles with yourself? Probably today, probably yesterday, sometime in the near, not too distant past. And if you're, you know, people say, oh, you're hard on yourself. I just want to say, the Father loves you. The Father's never changed. Before the world began, he loved Jesus. 
And in Jesus' baptism, he showed that he's well-pleased with Jesus. And now, the Bible says in Matthew 28, as he sent his disciples out, he said, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered, like, why all three? And why not just Jesus? Because we talk about Jesus all the time. Why do we baptize in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because all of those are identities, and we're going to just finish with the Father today, but explore the Son and Spirit the next couple weeks. But all all of those are identities that he's given you, where he says, this is who you are. The Father makes us a family of sons and daughters that are well loved by him. When you, as John chapter 1, verse 12 says, believe and receive Jesus Christ, you're adopted into the family, you have the right to be called a child of God, and the Father loves you as much as he loves his very own son who he's with for eternity. Now, you get adopted, you got to figure out, what does that look like? What does it look like? Because I've, I've never thought of, like, my experience is so broken or my experience is in. you got to learn the characteristics and the nature of the father who's adopted you. And that's why we're talking about this morning, um, who God is. God wants you to come to the place where, like Paul expresses in the New Testament, you can cry out with the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father, Dad. I need you. I love you. He wants you to be dependent on him in his love and not on your own strength, trying to perfect your life in such a way that you can finally make it all click. Because as you come to believe and experience this father love of God, this is what happens, and and, and I just love this. Uh, Bonhoeffer says this. He says, when God had mercy on us and when God revealed Jesus Christ to us as our brother, when God won our hearts by God's own love, our instruction in Christian love began at the same time. When God was merciful to us, we learned to be merciful with one another. When we received forgiveness instead of judgment, we too were made ready to forgive each other. And what God did to us, then we owed to others. The more we received, the more we were able to give. The more meager our love for one another, the less we're living by God's mercy and love. Thus, God taught us to encounter one another as God has encountered us in Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why do you put your garage door down every day and not open it up? Why do you go home and go into your house and like just close off from the rest of the world? Why, why do we do this? We don't know the love of the Father. We don't know how much he loves us. If getting together with other Christians who believe the very same thing as you is that much of a sacrifice and trial, A, it shows like, man, we, have, and, and again, I'm not putting one down because I'm the same way. It shows that we have gotten to the place where like our world, my life, everything I'm pursuing, I think that that's life. And if that's a sacrifice to do for you and to be a part of, you don't know the Father's love for you. And you don't know the Father's love for one another, do you? Like, if, if I don't want to get together with you, whose problem is that? That's my night. There's that saying, right? People have said, Christians, you have to love them all, but you don't have to like them all. I don't know about that, actually. Every Christian I've ever gotten to know eventually, I like something about them. Because how can you love someone if you don't like them at all? I think that's kind of like it. Even people that have been evil and wicked and, and horrible to me, I can find something to like about them. So God the Father, what he does is he loves us in such a way where it's like I can welcome anyone with the love that he's given me. 
He makes us family. And so I, I just want to point this out, by the way. Um, this is another plug here for Calvary Communities. Um, this is our Calvary community with our beautiful leader, uh, Chad, our dear leader. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Chad Phillips and his wife Bridget in the middle with his family. And then there's a few other families there that we love and care for. And uh, here, this is the, the passion that I share this with is this. Um, recently, you guys know some of you, my dad passed away. And these guys were so generous and so gracious. They made meals for us for like two weeks. I was like, well, it's not, I'm not my mom. I, I don't know if I need that. But it was such a blessing. And I can't imagine my life disconnected from these people. When I think of church, I love all y'all, but I, and I love this gathering, I love to sing, I love the power there, but that's what I think of when I think of church. And my heart absolutely breaks to think that anybody in this room who calls this church their family and their home would not have that in your life because I believe you need to see God for who he is and you will live that way. Um, so, Let me close with this quote, or at least get us to land the plane. Michael Reeves said this, at the heart of our transformation into the likeness of the Son, then, is our sharing of his deep delight in the Father. In our love and enjoyment of the Son, we are like the Father, and in our love and enjoyment of the Father, we are like the Son. That is the happy life the Spirit has called us to. That's the happy life. You know, I began this message by saying, do you want to get away from it all? Do you want to, like, escape? Or do you want to perfect? Those are normal impetuses. But what I'm saying to you is that in God, you don't need to. You have the life of God himself. Now you need to live that out with other people.